0: Of Better Practice, Better Life. Go to actdental.com forward slash BPA or hit the link in the show notes. Yo, yo, yo. Hey guys, welcome back to another awesome, awesome edition of the Best Practices Show podcast. You ever wish you could go back in a time machine and learn some things that would help you in your career? Well, we're going to do that today with Dr. Jim McKee, one of my favorite teachers, mentors in all of dentistry. Today, he shares the three things I wish I learned in dental school. You will love this. So make sure you listen up and we'll see you guys soon. Guys, welcome back to the Best Practices Show podcast. You know the jam here. I get to hang out with the coolest people in dentistry, ask them great questions, and they bring their wisdom to help you create a better practice and a better life. And we're going to do that today again with one of my favorite mentors in dentistry, Dr. Jim McKee. And he is actually teaching at Spear Education today and golfing this afternoon. So he had to rearrange his schedule to to get on the podcast with me, which I'm super grateful for. And we're going to take a look back at the three things he wish he would have learned in dental school. So you guys do not want to miss this. So, Jim, thanks for being on, brother. I appreciate you.
1: Kirk, it's always a pleasure. And I have to thank Kirk, who was gracious enough to rearrange his schedule to allow me to golf today. So I want to say thank you. Yeah. Um, it's always a great time to be together. Um, and, you know, it's interesting when we, When I started thinking about what we're gonna talk about today, I kind of started thinking about dental school. And when I look back at dental school, while there's a lot of things that I really wished I would have learned, I think there's three that kind of stick out. The first one is I really wished I learned how to listen to my patients. Because, you know, kind of as a young dentist, You don't quite know how to set your practice up. And you hear a lot about what you wanna do is to create a personal relationship with the patient. So I remember this guy came in, grew up in an area relatively close to where I did. He needed quite a bit of work actually, probably five, six crowns, needed some root canals. What I was busy doing was creating a personal relationship with him. We talked about similar places on the south side of Chicago. We grew up together people we might have known. When he came back for the consultation, basically he looked at me, went up to the front and said, I could get Max Ray's and I never saw him again. And I realized something didn't connect. And it really brought home the fact that it's taken me a while to learn this, but ultimately patients want two things. Patients want answers and patients want options. I was busy trying to create a personal relationship with him so we could get along well. The reality was, was he wasn't coming to me as for a friend. He was coming for someone to solve his problems. I didn't give him answers and I didn't give him options. So that's why I left. So it became real clear that in order to, to treat these types of patients, it seemed like I needed to be able to up my clinical game a little bit. So I, you know, I always said I lived in the golden age of dentistry. I heard Pete Dawson. I heard a lot of guys who aren't around anymore. But like any dentist today, whenever you learn new material, our tendency is to go back and to tell everything we know to the patient. You know, I did that when I came back from Dawson. I hear dentists doing it today with airway stuff. And all of a sudden now the patient becomes overwhelmed. So. Ultimately, I realized, yeah, you have to have a personal connect with the patient. But at some point, we have to be there to understand what they're looking for. I wasn't able to do that as a young dentist.
0: Yeah. And then coming out of dental school, maybe you could speak to this, Jim. The listening thing, it isn't even really on the radar. You kind of have to fail a little bit before. And, you you know, for me, you have to get married and learn that you're not the best listener. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I think you know, in fairness to all dentists anybody listening and I do have dental students listening to this podcast, listening is not one of your top priorities when you come out of dental school. True or false?
1: True because I think the the philosophy in dental school is one of learning. So what you're trying to do, you're literally like drinking from a fire hose. There's so much to learn in four years. You look at the medical side, you look at the dental side, you look at the nuances of having a drill in your hand for the first time and putting a diamond that's spinning at 250,000 times a minute in someone's mouth and all of a sudden you're terrified. You're trying to think, what degree do I prep the tooth? So there's all these things running through your head. So quite frankly, we're trying to manage our own issues. (laughs) So it's hard to get in someone else's head and have the time to listen to theirs. Right. And that kind of magnifies when you get out in dental school, because when you get into private practice, a lot of times the way the fees are set up is you're not being paid unless the bird's spinning. Right. So it's difficult to take the time to listen to patients. Right. What developed over time is I started to realize something and I forget, I heard this, I know it, a course, but I can't remember what course it was that whoever asks the questions controls the conversation. And ultimately I think our job is really good diagnosticians is to hear what the patient's saying and then lead them to the questions that they should ask. And what that means is we have to listen to what their issues are.
0: Yeah.
1: So as a new patient coming into your practice, how are my issues being listened to from a patient's perspective? Am I coming in and getting my teeth cleaned and having a two-second look and saying, this is okay? Or is it a different experience where I'm meeting with the doctor first and trying to get an understanding of what my problems are? And quite frankly, what do I need as a patient? Sometimes all I need is the cleaning. Right. So Frank, Spears talks, Frank Spear talks about filtering your patients uh, and he'll give patients the options. Would you just like a cleaning? Would you like a complete exam along with that cleaning? So it kind of gives the patients a little bit of leeway to make that choice. In terms of my specific practice, what happened over time, as I developed the clinical expertise, patients started to find me. So a lot of that discussion about how patients come in your practice got handled up front because they were coming for a specific reason. Yeah. But, you know, for years, especially during the transition period, I, I'm still today, quite frankly, I have two types of new patients coming to the practice. One patient is referred for a specific reason. Usually it might be a restorative case where it's more complicated than a neighborhood dentist feels comfortable doing. Another might be a patient with a joint-based issue that is coming in looking for some diagnostic, um, a diagnostic workup. Might be a young pre-orthodontic patient getting evaluated prior to orthodontic treatment, or it might be someone who moves in the neighborhood and their neighbor has been a patient of mine for thirty years and they need a cleaning. Right. All those need to be managed somehow uniquely, so that each of those patients feels like their answers are being or their op- or their issues are being addressed. Yeah. So that's why it gets down to I think really starting to figure out how those patients are coming into our practice which leads to a discussion probably at some point then about how do we answer the phone and how does all that stuff work together? Yeah. But then, well, that's all the things that we need consultants to teach because so many times, quite frankly, if we're busy at the chair, there's not really time for that. So some, it needs to get done somehow. Right. So whoever does it, whether you insource it or outsource it, it needs to be handled. So we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go on.
0: Right. I want you to go back to busy at the chair. Would you agree? I think anybody listening to this would say, I fundamentally agree with you, Jim. And there's a relationship between speed and quality of listening. There's a quotient there. There's a there's a you know, I and I'll tell you why I said this. This week I went to a healthcare provider who came into the room, the doctor, and asked me twice any plans for this summer? I told the doctor what my plans were for the summer. And then he asked again, and I could see by his eyes, he wasn't listening at all. And he had to be somewhere else. And it was not in dentistry, but you can see he had no time at all to listen to the end. And I think young dentists, you know, this is important. When you're creating this type of practice, Jim, you have a practice because I come to you I'm usually highly referred. And if I'm going to pay out of pocket for the quality you deliver, I got to know you're my person and there's got to be time to listen. So talk about the speed. You have to, you can't be moving hundred miles an hour to listen. Correct.
1: Well, you know, really what it comes down to is every patient's going to communicate differently. There are some patients. I remember I had a patient really needed a lot of comprehensive dental care. And I did a consultation with him and I was done in 15 minutes with the consultation. Patient walked out, my front desk person came up and said they didn't accept the treatment, did they? I said, yeah, they did. But he was a type A driver type personality and he was ready to hear it. So he didn't need a lot of time But what I have found is the more, the greater the complexity of the case that you're treating, generally the more time we have to spend up front in diagnostics and exam, exam before diagnostics, quite frankly. But if it's just two or three fillings, then yeah, then you can, maybe you can move through the process a little bit more quickly. If it's a more comprehensive problem, and I'll tell patients this, dentistry is like a funnel. If you spend a lot of time at the beginning, The end comes out pretty easy. If you don't spend as much time at the beginning, then you tend to have a lot of problems later on in the process. So for the complexity of your case, Mrs. Jones, what we may want to do is to spend a little bit more time up front so I can understand what the process is so we can get the diagnostic records that are necessary so you understand what your options are so we can get a good result for you. And the fee for that will be whatever it needs to be. But most of the time, if patients want answers and options, in my experience, they're willing to make that financial commitment to get that because many of the times they've been to places where they've simply gotten treatment because there's been no diagnosis. Because, you know, we tend to jump to the dessert. We go, we skip the exam, we skip the diagnosis, and we go right to treatment. We don't eat our vegetables. Right. You know, it's, it's hard. Because think think, you know, and especially in the world that I live in, the first thing that a patient generally comes in with a bite is a bite appliance. They have no idea of the condition of the tissue that they're trying to impact with the bite appliance. The bite appliance could be great for one type of an appliance, but maybe not appropriate for their type of an appliance. But there's been no diagnostic workup. So all of a sudden now we're throwing darts, but we got a blindfold on and we don't know what to expect. And as a result, most dentists say, I don't want to treat this type of patient because I can't get a predictable outcome. It's not that you can't get a predictable outcome, is we don't know what we're starting with. That's why we have a difficult time getting a predictable outcome.
0: That is so well said. I love it. I absolutely love it. What's the second thing you wish you would have learned in dental school?
1: Well, if number one was learning how to listen to patients, number two, without a doubt, is I wish I learned the importance of how to, Work with my staff members. You know, it's funny, we typically call it staff management. And I used to think that I needed to manage people all the same because that way I could be fair to everyone. What I realized is that everyone brings different strengths to the table, and everyone brings different weaknesses to the table, myself included. And it's taken a time, it's taken a while to get comfortable to realizing that what I need to do is I need to try and accentuate the strengths that my staff members have and I need to try and compensate for the weaknesses that they have as well. And again, that means that maybe some people do different things in the office than other people do. I probably wasn't okay with that when I was younger because I always thought everyone had to be cross trained exactly the same because that's what I was taught. In retrospect, looking back at it over the, over the years, My advice would be to find the strengths that people have and build on them. But ultimately, I think the term staff management is kind of a, it's a troublesome term because I don't think people like to be managed. I think they like to be led. Right. And really, I think practice management, if you want to call it that, or staff management is really staff leadership or practice leadership. It's part of the responsibility of being the owner of a small business is that if you really think about it, if I work four days a week and I have seven hours of practice time, eight hours a day plus a one hour lunch, I have 28 hours and I can allocate to my time and my practice. Now there's time, as every dentist will tell you, outside the 28 hours that add probably sometimes double that and in some weeks even more than that. But ultimately there has to be, I think what I found is my ability to lead the staff became infinitely greater once I started having regularly scheduled staff meetings. Why? Because I had time with them, and it gave me a chance to understand from a leadership perspective what I had to change in the practice technically, but not only technically, but non-technically as well.
0: Okay. Let me it, go there. It, okay. Let me ask you. Go ahead. So, Jim, I'm... I'm 32. I'm listening to you. But, Jimmy, you don't understand my practice. I don't have time for this. I've tried it. It doesn't work in my practice. It's recycling garbage over and over again. What would you say to
1: the dentist who says,
0: I don't have time for it?
1: I said, I would agree with them. Why? (laughs) Because if it's simply recycling garbage, then it's a staff meeting format issue. That's the issue. I used to always get stressed out the night before a staff meeting because I never knew what I was going to do, and then sooner or later, after I kept talking about the same thing over and over again, even I got tired of listening to myself. <laughs> so I sat down, and I, I don't know how this came, but I, I put together a staff meeting format that I will tell you was been bulletproof, and the dentists who use it will uniformly tell you to a person that it decreases the stress in their office. And it increases the ability of their staff to understand the big picture view of the practice, which is ultimately practice leadership. Mm -hmm. So what we do, we set aside two hours on Wednesdays from one until three. And the first thing we do is a review preview. So there's a Dairy Queen right next to the office. So I get him Dairy Queen and, you know, everyone's in a good mood. So we do a review preview. We look at last week's schedule, what worked, what didn't work from a scheduling perspective, from a patient management perspective, from a financial perspective. So we said, okay, this situation comes up again, here's how we're gonna handle it. And here's the thing I'm gonna recommend you really develop this skill. There's things that our staff does well every day and we never tell them because we're too busy. During that time at the staff meeting, you know, these are great diagnostic photos. This is exactly how we're trying to capture this look. Great job. And start to build the process that way. So we would do review, preview of the schedule. Then the other thing we did is we looked at our new patients and our consults. This is a new patient coming in. They were referred by Mrs. Jones. Their chief concern is they have clicking in the left joint. They need some implant work on the lower right. So basically what it did, it became a treatment planning discussion. If this patient's going to need implants on the lower right, then we're probably going to want to get a CT scan so we can look at the bone. We're probably going to want an inter scan so we can do our digital diagnostic wax up so we can start planting our implants. So the whole philosophy, the culture and the practice was what was developed during the staff meeting time you couldn't pay enough to develop that culture. right? So when, when people say they can't afford it, I'm going to look back and say, I don't think you can afford not to do it. Right. Because all of a sudden then, what happens the next week, the new patient came in, they have a consultation. So now you looked at the new patient last week. Now you've got the scans in front of you. You're looking at the case that your oral surgeon or your periodontist, or if you're putting the implants in, you look and see where you've got this all developed digitally. You've got your guides on how you're going to place the implants. Your clinical verbiage and training skills with your staff becomes off the charts because they understand the cases. And all of a sudden now it's not difficult for them to talk to patients while you go to get a hygiene check because they understand the process completely. So all of a sudden, all that time the dentist had to use cleaning up the bits and pieces of the questions from the consult, that all gets handled because staff can handle it because they know exactly what they're doing. Whether it's reading MRIs, whether it's looking at CTs, whether it's talking to patients about orthodontics, whether it's talking to patients about aesthetics or airway or whatever you want to talk to the patients about, that staff meeting time allows you then to be able to create a framework that you can educate your staff in that's really unparalleled.
0: Yeah.
1: So that's why that the staff training issue is so important. The other thing with staff is helping them really, what most dentists don't do with staff is they don't define their roles. I'm gonna go back to an old tool that Pete Dawson taught me and you probably remember this, Kirk. He talked about looping. Do you remember talking about looping? Absolutely. I use looping for lectures I put together, for staff. I taught my kids how to write their papers in high school with it. Basically, for any position in your office, you write down everything related to front desk as fast as you can. Go back and prioritize it. Combine like topics. Eliminate anything that's extraneous. And then go back and prioritize the top one of those and do the same thing about the top one. Loop everything. And what you end up with is as many times as you want to loop that, Basically, standarding operating procedure for manual for your office. You can use that for staff evaluations. Staff can rate themselves on a scale of one to four. You can rate them staff on a scale of one to four. You know what you're going to be surprised at? That gives you another chance to say, you know, you rated yourself a two here. I think you're a four. You're doing a great job. So it gives you a chance to validate them, which honestly is what we should be doing more than we do, quite frankly. We have enough time to To nitpick the things we need to change. We need to make sure that they're validated and that they understand that we know that they can do a good job. Now, if you've got someone that you're continually having to validate without them doing a good job, that's a different discussion. Then you have to have a, then you have the discussion. Are you happy here? And see where that goes because it doesn't seem like things are working out. That's for for another another interview.
0: (laughs) Right, right, right. That is for another conversation. And let me just throw this into the conversation uh, on this one, Jim. If I'm a dentist listening and I'm like, yeah, I would love to do that. I just mm, I can't find an XYZ, like a hygienist. I can't find an assistant. Or I haven't been able to find the right team. What would you say to them just at this point in this conversation?
1: You know, I would say keep the faith. I say staff finding good staff is always tough.
0: Right,
1: that's part of owning a business, and you know it's tougher today post COVID. I nice. mean, to not acknowledge that isn't reality. So it seems like that is really. I think the more attractive practice you have. You know, we were lucky we didn't work evenings and weekends because we had a clinical skill base. The patient came to us during the day. We also were able not to be involved with insurance. So what it allowed us to do is have patients that sometimes were very driven for the financial part and would somehow handcuff the dentist in terms of the treatment planning discussion because insurance didn't cover it. And then the patients, and then the dentist had to accept a secondary treatment plan that they really didn't endorse simply because that's what the insurance covered. A lot of those patients got moved out of the practice. So if that's the case, keep the faith. Um, <clears throat> I was always a big proponent of paying people a good wage, though. Right. I mean, I, I paid them a higher wage. I, I I didn't do medical benefits. What I did do, though, was a 9% retirement plan contribution. So basically, I, I bonus them. Basically, we had to do 3% for the safe harbor contribution, but I bonus them an additional six as part of our annual bonus. And that was more than if I had provided medical for them and more than probably a traditional bonus would have been also. So that was based on, that was based on the profitability of the practice. So they knew they had some skin in the game, but that's pretty much what I did every year. So they they got paid pretty much higher than anyone else and they got a good bump at the end of the year. But you can't do that unless you've got the fees to do it, so.
0: Right. So well said, Jim. And I think how you started the answer—I love it. All these those points support it. Having an, a more attractive practice, you know, just culture, hours. If I if I'm really good as a chair site assistant in Chicago, I know I'm good, and I'm going to find a, a practice that can appreciate my talents. It's a it's an attractive pr- place to work. So I completely for sure, would. yeah, for sure. What's uh? What's number three? What's the third thing you wish you would have learned in dental school?
1: Well, it kind of relates to what we were just talking about. Um, I wish I had learned how to set my fees differently. What? You know, I, I, I had no, you know, let's think back. How are dental school fees set? They're typically based upon government fees. Right. And then when you get out of dental school, you go into practice and you're either going to be in network or out of network. If you're in network, that's real clear. Your fees are set by a network, by whatever plan that you're with. And a lot of times when you get out of school, that's what you have to do. When I got out, I did welfare dentistry. So I was working at a a fixed fee practice that the government set the fee for. Um, But usually, even when I started the, the fee for service practice, if you really think about it, I wasn't involved with insurance plans, but my fees were still set insurance companies. Because how do most dentists, when they got out of school, set their fees for a crown? They call their buddy down the street and say, hey, what are you charging for a crown? Right. And usually their buddy's charging, usual and customary, or maybe just a little bit above right. usual and customary, because we don't want to have a talk why insurance isn't covering it. Right. And that's usually how the fees are set. Ultimately, when you think about it, there's only two ways to set fees. It's going to be set by someone out of your practice, which is going to be some type of insurance company or government agency, or it's going to be sent by the person who owns the business. Most of the time, if you look at people that own small businesses that are basically into construction or reconstruction is what we are basically in the mouth, if you think about it, it's basically a time and materials fee structure. That's what we need to be. I have someone who's coming over to do something at my house. It's going to be a time and materials. Someone comes to the practice. It really should be time and materials. We're not good at that because again, we've been taught that we really don't have value unless the burr is spinning. And that's because insurance companies generally don't pay for things unless they're decayed or they're broken. Right. So the ability to diagnose is gone because we're not being paid for it. So unless you're able to create value for your patients on something that you're going to be able to give them answers and options for, which they need and they want, you're going to have a hard time. So what you've seen dentists do is to try and create ways that they can now bring value to their patients. I mean, if you look at it, that's what a prosthodontics degree does. A prosthodontist is looking to do more advanced restorative dentistry. It's why teaching centers like Spear exist, like John Coyce exist, like Dawson exists, like Panky exists. They're basically to increase the restorative base skills of general practitioners for the most part. You see patients doing implants or dentists doing implants as well to try and bring something else to the practice. You saw a big, huge craze in aesthetics, especially in the, in the early 2000s into the uh, into the recession, really, where you saw a lot of things start to change. You see airway a lot today. So everyone's trying to bring different things to the practice. The thing that no one talks about, though, is the foundation of the entire system, which are the jaw joints. So send us your huddled masses, we'll be happy to take care of them. <laughs> And really what's happened, actually, honestly, in my practice, it's what allowed me to have a fee structure that was not tied to usual and customary. Now, when I started, it was, but the more I realized these cases take time to work up and the cases diagnose, and once I started to realize that I was doing something different than the patient was getting when they went somewhere down the street, I became more comfortable raising my fees. I remember Mark Piper, who's an oral surgeon, who retired now, said something once that he said every case is going to be a teaching case. And Mark put together a PowerPoint template, and I basically I, I took that advice from him. And every case gets a PowerPoint template. They get a consultation letter. They get screen captures of their imaging. That goes out to them, and it goes out to the referring dentist or any other dentist that you're working on with the case. And so all of a sudden, that's not really marketing your practice. What that's doing is positioning your practice. It's positioning your practice, to be the practice in the community. When dentists see a problem like that, that they're not comfortable with, they're gonna think about having the patient see you. The fortunate thing, quite frankly, is that there's so many patients with joint-based either malocclusions or pain issues or, you know, today, you know, I'm convinced it's really difficult to do airway today unless you understand joints. You know, so many of the people that have compressed pharyngeal airway space have short ramus lengths because their discs came off early and their lower jaw didn't grow well, neither did their upper jaw. And all of a sudden now we're making appliances that pull people forward with damaged condyles with no soft tissue protection. You know, Jeff Rouse and I did a, a webinar for Spear treating Are we titled Are We Treating the Same Patient? you know, Jeff coming in from an airway perspective and I'm coming in from a joint perspective, you know, Jeff said something that really stuck with me. He goes, I'm, I, I'm kind of getting out of making sleep appliances because I'm, I don't like having patients' jaws get sore. I don't like their bites changing. So all of a sudden today we're treating one problem for another and with the number of discussions that there are about the orthanathic components now, with airway cases in terms of moving the maxilla and moving the mandible. That has to be done with an understanding of what's happening at the joint level. So now, I think today, understanding the condition of the joint becomes more important than it has ever been in the past based upon the changes that we're seeing in the airway discussions. So that's why I think whatever type of practice you want, you can create, I would suggest because most of the people listening to this, I'm going to guess are going to be restorative dentists, create a restorative diagnostic practice. So basically diagnostics in in our practice is a subspecialty now. I have one column with restorative booked. I have one column with diagnostics booked. And quite frankly, my assistants outproduce our hygienists every day of the week because of the fees for diagnostic records. What it allows you to do is to have a practice model that doesn't have to be eight to 10 chairs and have a huge overhead, and yet you can be extremely profitable because you're going to have a referral-based system with well-trained staff with fees that are significantly higher than usual and customary. It is a practice model that, in my opinion, is not discussed enough. And I think today is a practice model that is really underserved. You can do airway in this model. You could do implants in this model. You could do whatever. I happen to do joints and occlusion because that was, quite frankly, that no one else was doing. And I got into that at a young age. I wish I could say that I planned it, but it was total dumb luck. Mm -hmm. But whatever you do, if you can create a restorative diagnostic practice, I think it's a practice management model that'll allow you to have a sustaining, thriving practice. I got to tell you, pretty much in any economy, Even when the economy went south in the times that it has, our practice stayed busy and stayed profitable. So that would be my thoughts about fees and thinking about fees differently.
0: Jim, that's brilliant. That is an entire podcast episode that I'm going to make you come back. We're going to do a week in the life of Dr. Jim McKee and how you put those columns together just philosophically, because that's brilliant. It's absolutely sure. brilliant. And it clearly articulates the time and materials framework that you described. Because think about this. If you're a dentist, listening, you only have so many hours. The ultimate test of getting more you know, efficient or getting better at what you do or serving people at a higher level is they have to do more comprehensive stuff and possibly less days. I mean, you don't want to be working five days a week trying to keep up with the production numbers that you have told yourself, what a brilliant way, Jim, to think better about the future. Now, I want you to piggyback on one more concept. You're out at Spear teaching the advanced occlusion course. You don't see this anymore. It's underserved in the world of CE and very well attended by you guys. Why? Why has occlusion gone away?
1: you know occlusions not the glamorous topic and especially joints aren't the glamorous topic the reality it is the foundation for everything you know here you know okay here's the reality when i was a younger dentist if i was a new if i was 28 year old new dentist and a 28 year old new patient came into my practice let's say this is 1986 87 They probably had MOD amalgams on most of their posterior teeth that were going to need restorative treatment over my professional career. And it's funny, I look back at a lot of those cases now, and I'm glad to say they've held up pretty well. Today, if you're a 28-year-old new dentist, you don't have that type of restorative in your practice. What you do have is clicking and popping joints that are everywhere. You've got class two occlusions that have failed. So you have our orthodontics that have been done two, three times. You have patients with headaches, you have airway patients. All that is gonna dominate your schedule far more than the MOD amalgams that I ended up doing crowns on, a lower left quadrant of four teeth in the morning to have quite frankly, very good production. That production needs to be replaced. And I will tell you, I don't think there's a more predictable way to do it than diagnosing joints. Quite frankly, you know, we've made the mistake that that diagnosing joints is about pain. Pain is the last thing you feel in any disease process, the jaw joints included. The most common clinical presentation you're going to see, or the earliest clinical presentation that we're going to see of someone with structure altered joints, is a class two bite shift whether that's in a six-year-old, whether that's in a 10-year-old, whether that's in a 14-year-old now getting their maxillary premolars extracted because they have such an overjet. We've made getting a class one occlusion the goal of dentistry. We That's great if we have a normal joint. If we don't have a normal joint, then we have to look at the foundation of the joint before we're gonna take a look at the bite. That's why occlusion's gone away because quite frankly, it's hard to spend enough time working up these cases to pay for it. That's why I said before, you got to be able to set your fees in a way that you can get paid because, you know, I always tell the joke that I said, you know, I was born handsome instead of wealthy. I need to make this work. (laughs) I said that once in a lecture and the guy in the front row goes, I hate to say this, you didn't get either. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. But I mean, there has to be a way that you can make this work and, Honestly, I will tell you that the, you know, the other thing is that sometimes patients who have occlusal, and you know, when you say occlusion, I'm going to include TMD into that because I really think when we talk about occlusion, we limit our discussion to the teeth. The reality is there's joints on the back of that. So when you think about occlusion, it's a tripod. It's the joints on the back end and it's the teeth on the front end. We don't think about how the joints on the back end fit. That's occlusion too. So if we look at occlusion as how all three components fit, then we start to understand there's a lot more malocclusion at the back end of the system and the front end of the system are just along for the ride. That's why you see the open bites. That's why you see the class twos. All those aren't genetic based because that's what we were taught. The reality is most of those have a joint based concept where the lower jaw didn't grow, the upper jaw didn't grow. They both didn't grow, and all of a sudden the teeth are now what well, we're seeing because we're dentists. I mean that's, and then what we do is we ship them off to the orthodontist, and we get upset when the orthodontist sends them back and they're not a class one bite. We're setting the orthodontist up to fail. We're being completely unfair to our orthodontist. I'm thinking that when we send a patient over, basically any type of class two patient. They should already go over with an image to diagnostics of their jaw joints. So the orthodontist knows exactly the type of situation they're getting into. So, yeah, that's a long answer to a it.
0: I love it. I love it. So let's just go there. If I'm a dentist listening, I've never been to Spear and I come out and take the advanced occlusion course. What are you going to teach me tomorrow and the next day and the next day? What happens?
1: Well, it's the way that's kind of set up. It's set up, so the first day of the workshop is heavy on content because what we want to do is we want to establish some guidelines. We want to establish some concepts. We want to establish some principles. Uh, We're going to look, you know, a lot of people come out and say, I don't know what to look at. I want to look at an MRI and a CT scan. You're going to know that by lunchtime on the first day. Um, We're going to do a lot on recognition. So basically we have treatment planning exercises on the first day where we kind of get the information just as you would in the office. And then we start to say, okay, what does this mean in the history? What are we going to be thinking about? Because ultimately, the whole goal when you're assessing a patient is to know, do you need to image or do you not need to image? So a lot of the first day is based upon that. We end the first day with a review of CBCT and MRI imaging because we start day two with, a call from a radiologist, Tom Preddy, who I've worked with for 25 years, who's an expert. So we bring in the medical perspective of it. So Tom's on a Zoom call like this, great guy to listen to, um, very good communicator. Tom's gonna to lecture at the American Incorporation Society this year. Tom and I have lectured together. Tom's lectured at AES in previous years as well. He brings a medical perspective that we need to hear. So that's how day two starts. Um day two morning we'll have skills then. We'll have hands-on, we'll work on seating the joints, we'll work on learning how to use a Doppler, um, we'll work on photography that we use. Then basically we start treatment planning. So day three afternoon or day two afternoon is treatment planning. We'll do a case that involves an occlusal appliance. We'll show you how to adjust a full-arch occlusal appliance. We'll do a posterior reconstruction case where we rebuild it both in composite and printed onlays. Um We'll end up with day three, we'll be more treatment planning in the morning. At the end of the morning on day three, we have a diagnostic nerve block exercise. The reason we do that is because you are gonna see patients, the more patients you see with structural alterations, the more patients are gonna have pain. Diagnostic, diagnostic nerve blocks are a super easy way to be able to differentiate pain sources. We're not, you'll just be to show you where to, to put the, the needle, so no one's gonna get injected. And then day three afternoon is all implementation. It's all the systems, it's all the handouts, it's all the exam forms. It's basically when you leave, it's a turnkey operation to go home and start doing this. Now it'll take time, but I will tell you, it will change your practice and it'll change it, I think in a way that really nothing else can. It makes you almost impervious to outside influences in the practice.
0: I love it. I love it. So if you're listening and you're not taking notes, don't worry. We're taking notes for you. You can flip up to the notes in Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you're listening to this podcast, you're going to see a link to not only what Jim does, but a link to this course. And I'm going to encourage you to check it out. Now, I also want, do you have a few more minutes? I know you're- I have
1: as long as you would like.
0: Okay. I want you to talk about your study club. You also have a cool, cool study club. What is it? What do you do? How do you do it?
1: Chicago Study Club um, It was interesting. Mark Piper, I've, I've, I've been a proponent of study clubs for a long time. For me, it's my best way to learn and it's my favorite way to teach. I was going to Dawson and Panky courses 32 years ago and I started a local study club that's still in existence. So for me, it allows me to cover more material more quickly. I ran a study club in Nova Scotia for Michelle Camo for seven years. Mark Piper and I ran a study club for 11 years together. When Mark retired, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. So I thought about it and I said, I'm going to get a few more people involved. So I asked three other dentists to start the Chicago Study Club program with me. Kurt Ringhoffer's is the first one. Kurt's been on one of the podcasts before. Kurt's a great restorative dentist. It's about 20 minutes from me. Kurt also is in the local study club. Kurt helps me out here with the Advanced Occlusion Workshop. Second guy was Drew McDonald. Drew's also been on the the show before. Drew's an orthodontist in New Mexico, cutting edge orthodontist, orthodontist who understands the relationship between joints and occlusion. Not that necessarily the bite causes the joint, but more that the joint causes the bite problem. And then lastly, Seth Atkins, who is a young dentist in Waxahachie, Texas. Seth is a whiz on digital dentistry, an excellent restorative dentist. He's gonna be out again, helping with the workshop this week. And so the four of us, basically a four-day study club. It's two days in the spring. It's two days in the fall. It's in Chicago. Um, it is, we're kind of stingy about this, to be honest with you. It's basically by interview. Um, so if you'd like information, you can email me at jim at mckeedds.com. We've limited it because we want to control the conversation in it. Um, we want people to be people who will learn well together. Um, so that's why we've kept it that way. Um, we, we we thought we'd have 24. We're actually at about 40 now. So we're getting ready to start a list for another study club. It's been really well received. You know, the, the problem is there's not a lot of places that are teaching joint-based concepts these days. Right. So it's going to be one of the areas that you're going to see. The other thing we do is we bring a lot of people. Um, we'll bring people into the study club. Um, on March 31st, you may know... Uh, a, Young dentist in San Antonio named Dr. Bill Robbins. Yes, we had Bill. We had Bill come up and present to our study club. He was our first outside speaker. Bill did a fabulous job as he always does. Um, but the goal is to talk about joint seclusion, restorative dentistry, airway, how to implement. It's a study club that's basically it's a it's a study club based upon the concepts um, that I think are the top concepts in dentistry today. So. We'll, we're going to either do presentations on them or we're going to bring the best people in to do them. So if you'd like more, send me an email. We can talk and then we'll go from there.
0: Yeah. So again, I'll put uh, Jim's email in the show notes. You can click right on it. It'll generate an email. We send it directly to him and see if you can qualify to get into a study club. I love it. You do have to control the conversation to make any group special. right? It's got to right. be a shared value, um, thing.
1: That's, that's what study clubs are. Right. And you know, that's, that's why, you know, you know, honestly I've done, I've done a lot of courses over the years. A course is a different teaching methodology than a study club. Of course you have a certain, you have a topic list you want to get through and you do that over whether it's an hour, whether it's a day, whether it's two days, whether it's three days. I mean, I know exactly what I'm going to cover the next three days at Spear. Study clubs are different. Study clubs are like going to a concert. Study clubs are live events. We want us to do something else, we'll do something else. But basically what happens with this is the members of the study club are the ones that basically create the content. Because I'll send an email out probably three months before the study club, I say, tell me what you want to talk about. Now I've already got ideas on what we're gonna do, but I know our October one is gonna be heavy on orthodontics. So we're, bring, we're having our members bring orthodontists in, and we're going to talk about the problems that orthodontists face today, both from an airway and an occlusion perspective. So it's going to be an awesome, awesome two days. Um, but really, I think study clubs allow you, once you have a knowledge basis, to move faster along the learning curve than regular courses do.
0: Yeah, totally agree. Jim, I appreciate your friendship, your mentorship, and your wisdom all the time. So thank you so much for being on, buddy.
1: Feeling is absolutely mutual. Thank you.
0: Awesome. Well, stick around while we say goodbye to everybody else, but thank you guys for listening to this very special episode of the best practices show. I'm going to encourage you to reach out to Jim either in the advanced occlusion course, his study club, and heck, if he's speaking anywhere, you got to see it because he's just one of the greats and our hope today was this was great information to help you create a better practice and a better life so uh keep sending us suggestions for things that you guys want to see we're lining them up all the time and until we see you guys next time or you hear from us next time keep watching keep listening to the best practices show you guys enjoy your day so there you have it another great episode hope you guys enjoyed it hey